0: The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code The Gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, April
1: fifteenth, two 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. With Hillary Clinton having announced, and Marco Rubio offering more syllables in his candidacy than Rand Paul and Ted Cruz combined, the media are doing their job. They're asking, hey, what's Elizabeth Warren up to? Vox today, Vox, little yellow different, Vox says... Elizabeth Warren has a game-changing idea that doesn't require Congress. By the way, not requiring Congress, that seems like a prerequisite given the environment, but go on, Vox. Elizabeth Warren isn't running for president, but she does have an agenda for reigning in the big banks that would go well beyond the Obama administration's underrated bank regulation moves and substantially alter the role of Wall Street in American life. All right, let me tell you what the idea is. It is a good idea. The Justice Department prosecutes companies all the time. And the big banks often, like HSBC and Citibank, they enter deferred prosecution. So they pay a fine. They promise we will do no more wrong. Charges aren't brought. The banks continue on employing people. The economy hums along. So the theory goes. But then the same banks break the law again. And what Warren is saying, all Warren is saying is the same banks, nuh-uh. Here's how Vox writes up what she says should be done. The biggest idea here is a two strikes and you're out policy for the Justice Department. In other words, if a bank's already under deferred prosecution, they can't enter deferred, deferred prosecution. But there's something wrong with the way Vox is phrasing it. Vox is for this move, but you're going to undercut it if you call it two strikes and you're out because, like the headline says, that would be a game changer too much of a game changer. If you say two strikes and you're out, it just doesn't seem fair to people. That's not playing by the rules. You have to phrase it like this, Elizabeth Warren backs a no third chances policy. People will like that. The Justice Department, however, is apparently playing under NBA rules. You're still in the game with five fouls, so we are not even in the same ballpark here. On the show today, RTTV, Putin programs, you decide. I spiel about the copter on the Capitol lawn. But first, a detail of the healthcare law that is scaring a lot of people. And unlike so many Obamacare scares, this one is nonfiction. Here's a pretty cheery video from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation about expanding Medicaid. So, more people in need will have health insurance?
0: About 14 million more.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cheery. It's ukulele music. It sounds like Feist in an Apple commercial. Like I said, it's ukulele music. And the Medicaid expansion is portrayed as a pretty good thing. It actually ends with the guy saying...
0: Great. Happy I asked.
1: Here's what the video doesn't mention. So, what happens after I use Medicaid, but things don't go well?
0: What do you mean by things don't go well?
1: Well, what if I die?
0: Oh, then every state has the right under federal law to go after your assets. But
1: my kids live in that house.
0: Sorry, that's the law. It's been that way for 20 years.
1: Glad I asked. Yup, that is the law. It is not just a hoax. I'll read from Consumer Reports Q&A. Will Medicaid take my house when I die? If I enroll in a new Medicaid expanded program when I die and try to leave something to my kids, can the government attach those assets to repay the benefits I receive? Answer. When I first started getting questions like this a few weeks back, I figured it was just another Obamacare urban legend like many others I've heard. It isn't. Well, joining me now to explain what is going on is Phil Gallowitz, who's a senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News, which is part of the Kaiser Family Foundation. Hello, Phil. Hi there. So what's going on? You sign up for Medicaid, which has been portrayed as this very positive thing, gets people, health care. And then after you die, your house can go to the government?
2: Well, there are some limitations to that. It's not as straightforward that they're, they're, the government's taking houses around the country uh, from uh, poor people after they die. Uh, for the most part, this has been limited to when people are in nursing homes. So most states are only going after funds for people who've been in nursing homes. But there's even limitations beyond that. If you have a, a surviving spouse who's still living in your home, the government is not going to go after your home. If you have young children who, under 21 who are still living in that home, the government is not going to go after your home. If you have some other hardships that you can present, uh, the government is not going to go after the home. It's actually really limited. States and the federal government spends tens of billions of dollars on Medicaid, particularly for uh, long-term care, but only recoups millions. To put it in context, don't get overly scared. This does exist there, but it's still a pretty limited program, but you should still be aware of it.
1: Yeah, so it's not jack thugs. It's not happening left or right. But most people who sign up for this or a lot of people and are in nursing homes, don't have kids who are under 21. Plenty of people do have adults, older kids who are living in a home technically in, a, in an older person's, the title is belonging to an older person. And Patricia McGuinness, quoted in the Wall Street Journal, who's the executive director of California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform, says that people are terrified by the recovery policy. It's disproportionately affecting low income and people of color. Many people don't even know that this can happen. Has this aspect of the Medicaid expansion been poorly communicated?
2: It is to a degree, but it's also most people don't think about nursing home care on a regular basis. It's not just something most 40- and 50-year-olds. But remember, a lot of people who go into nursing homes and end up on Medicaid, a lot of these people are, are middle-income people who spend – you know, nursing home care is very expensive in this country. And if you don't have any long-term care insurance, which the large majority of people don't, you have to pay for the care. To qualify for Medicaid, you have to spend down – they call spend down your assets. So – to qualify so so there's lawyers and there's programs that have been set up around the country that have tried to help people sort of put their assets in places so states cannot go after their homes put them in trust for example is one way that a lot of people try to protect their homes so so the government can't take them in case you go into a nursing home so yes you know obviously millions of people have joined this has been one of the biggest surges in medicaid we've seen in history whether this is stopping thousands of people from enrolling I haven't seen that around the country.
1: Right. Okay. Do you think that, I mean, if you're hearing, is there going to be reform on this aspect of the law, either federally or statewide?
2: At the state level, right. We've seen a number of states, uh, again, restrict the Medicaid state recovery to just the nursing home part of it, not to all Medicaid costs. California, they're debating that. Colorado, Connecticut, Oregon, or a couple other states that have recently scaled back uh, the costs that you can recover. I don't think we're going to see much change at the federal level. Most of Medicaid, is, it's a state program, so most of the changes we'll see at the state level.
1: Phil Gallowitz, senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News, which is part of the Kaiser Family Foundation. Thank you, Phil. You're welcome. I've been telling you how Stamps.com is great for business. I mean, it depends on your business, right? Sword Swallower? Maybe not. Sword Swallower, who also does a hefty mail order business? Yeah, you know, shipping some swords? Absolutely. Well, here's validation from a listener, non-Sword Swallower Division, who signed up for Stamps.com after hearing about it on Slate Podcasts. Mark Allender, a graphic designer, we say he heard about it on Slate Podcasts, but he's on the Gist's page a lot. I'm going to say maybe Mark is a Gist listener. I don't know, maybe a little mom and dad are fighting, right? But this is what Mark says. He's self-employed, and when a small business began to have the need for regular mailing and shipping, he signed up for Stamps.com. Maybe he heard a few Panoply podcasts, and he uses Stamps.com. He uses it right from his computer. Mark says that it's made a huge difference in his business shipping operations. When asked how Stamps.com changed his business, Mark was heard to claim Stamps.com, quote, made it possible, end quote. That says it all. It changed his business. Right now, use my promo code the GIST for this special offer, a no-risk trial, a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait, go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. On this program, David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, once compared Vladimir Putin's propaganda tactics to his forefathers in the Soviet Union. And he noted that, for instance, Stalin would have to maintain a large series of gulags to suppress the population. If anything, Putin is more efficient through a couple of high profile prosecutions and also steadily keeping a finger on the balance of media he's able to achieve extremely high popularity scores within his home country is he able to convince the world i don't even know if that's that important to him in fact putin is such a good propagandist the more he gets criticized internationally the more he seems to make it work for himself well joining me now is lucas i albert who covers media for the wall street journal and was a moscow correspondent for many years he's come out with a new kindle single called kremlin speak inside putin's propaganda factory hey lucas Hi, how are you? I'm well. And this is really about Putin is involved in many forms of propaganda, but you focus on a big one, which is a, a network and a newspaper and a couple other things that can be seen here in America, RT.
0: Right, yeah. So th- this focuses specifically on international outreach, if you will. Uh, so, yeah, th- exactly. RT, which was previously known as Russia Today, Kremlin financed English language, uh, primarily uh, uh, television station. If you look at it on the surface, it looks a lot like the BBC um, or, you know, Deutsche Welle or France 24, you know, quite a a sleek production. Most of the presenters are from England or American, or if they're Russian, they, you know, studied abroad, so mm-hmm. they have no accent, you know, so it's very professionally presented.
1: They're all good looking, they're all presentable, you right. can picture them all taking a weekend shift
0: at MSNBC or Fox, mm-hmm. but for the content. Right, so that's where it gets kind of interesting, is when you actually look at the content. Now, if you just sort of jump in, where you might really stumble across RTs, actually in hotels, There, if you go in Europe... It's in every hotel room, along with CNN and BBC.
3: Our reporters risk their safety and sometimes their lives all
2: over the world to bring people stories non-propaganda channels don't want you to see. And we cover both sides.
1: And I would say the majority of their stories have nothing to do with Russia. It's like covering the world like an international They actually really like,
0: almost don't cover Russia at yeah. all. The only time you would ever see anything on Russia is if they would maybe live telecast uh, a speech by Putin, which would be you know simultaneously translated into English. But what they do do, particularly in the United States, is that they, they have a, a variant of it called RT America, and they have a big headquarters in Washington. They've got reporters in New York and around the country. And they do documentaries, reporting about America, but quite negative in tone Uh, it always seems to gravitate about things where if russia is being accused of something let's say human rights violations they would counter by doing a report about guantanamo bay you know hey you do it too kind of thing this is a very common thing right now on rt one
4: of the united nations top investigators turned away from visiting conditions at u.s federal prisons and guantanamo bay we discuss what the government may be hiding
0: it goes back to Soviet-era propaganda. It was something called whataboutism. Right. Uh, this is a, a phrase that you hear a lot in Russia. You know, that's how they respond to And a to classic
1: example is during uh, the Reagan administration, a very popular documentary that aired on Russian TV was about the problem of American homelessness. Mm-hmm. Not exactly. that. And people were shocked. And America was supposed to be this land of riches. And, you know, it was a legitimate enough documentary. But the impetus behind it was to make America look bad. What about America?
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so... Uh, having spent several years in Russia and, you know, I was very plugged into, you know, the the domestic media there. We had, well, we had RT on one channel. We had, you know, uh, Russia 24, which is their CNN internal Russian channel uh, on all day. And we were monitoring Russian wires and we saw the press releases coming from the different ministries. And that when you're sort of in that position, you actually get to see the messaging being put together quite clearly mm-hmm. so what would happen for example, you know the foreign ministry would make a statement you know say it was about Ukraine criticizing some procedural thing and almost immediately after uh, oftentimes you would see a very well put together package on RT sort of parroting these points. so obviously it was done you know in coordination or sometimes the report would come out first you know about some event that occurred and the statement would come from the foreign ministry so soon afterwards in response, that it all seemed like this was being put together. Um, In talking to people who've worked for the station, um, it was indeed there were handlers at the foreign ministry. They said that, you know, if they were dealing with anything that was deemed even remotely politically sensitive, they had to run it by them. Uh, before they did anything.
1: So what happens when the international story is clearly about Russia and you can't look away, like the downing of Malaysian Airlines
0: Flight 17 in Ukraine? Uh, Well, that is a a great case study, which is actually the kind of core case study I use for this book about how they sort of try and subvert the general consensus about what has happened by sowing seeds of doubt. So what would happen is if you watched pretty much every news channel or read most international news accounts on what happened with the Malaysian air flight over Ukraine, while it was a circumstantial case, most arrows pointed to the fact that, you know, the Russian backed rebels in eastern Ukraine had been for days prior, weeks prior shooting down Ukrainian military planes with increasingly sophisticated weapons. So it stands to bear that, you know, they they were probably responsible for this. But if you watched RT, you actually would never have seen that explanation. Or if you did, it would have just been sort of said other media is reporting this. But what they would offer is every other plausible and implausible scenario under the sun, and they did.
4: Russia's Interfax news agency is quoting a source in the Russian aviation industry claiming President Putin's plane may have actually been the target of the attack. It is claimed that the president's jet crossed paths over Warsaw at the exact same
0: height as the doomed Boeing. Now just 40 minutes later. Even more preposterous scenario was uh, offered that and this goes into uh, a general sort of problem that you encounter in Russia is that people tend to really believe in conspiracy theories. Yep. There was this uh, uh, a scenario posited that the, the Malaysian air flight that disappeared uh, in, Ch- in the South China Sea six or eight months earlier had been kept in some sort of like f- freezer somewhere and that this plane had been brought out again and was blown up out of the sky. And this was all some giant uh, you know, propaganda thing to smear Russia absolutely insane. So some of the journalists there
1: resigned over what they were made to say. Right. How naive were they coming in to think that what their employer, who their employer was or what their employers wanted to say?
0: In in one case, the kind of the most high profile one, her prior job, she had been a a local news reporter in Guam. And so she got contacted. Step up. (laughs) Right. She got contacted by you know, our team. They said, look, we'd like you to come. You're going to do all this international news. You work in Washington. We do all these stories that the other media kind of ignores. And, you know, it was a well-sold mm-hmm. pitch. And she's, you know, a young, aspiring journalist trying to, you know, make a career. And this seemed like a good thing. I think they pay fairly well. So, you know, that's often how they do it. You know, you get people with very little experience. You're trying to make a clip reel and, you know, do some bigger stories, which it allows you. But, you know, once you sort of get into the... And, get into it and you see how the sausage is put together, you know, it's kind of an eye opener for a lot of these people. They also hire a lot of people, though, who are kind of true believers, if Mm -hmm. you will. Not necessarily like, you know, we love Russia, but, you know, that there may be, you know, there's a a strain in in American politics now where, you know, both on the far left and kind of in the libertarian world where there's this deep mistrust of the American government. And this is really their audience, actually. Um, You know, R.T., as a broadcast channel is not, maybe so widely watched, but it's on YouTube where they really kind of reach their audience, which is people who believe that 9/11 was an inside job, people who believe, you know, that you know, who are maybe uh, deep supporters of you know WikiLeaks and this kind of you know anti-sort of American government positioning. That's who they are reaching out to, and you know, so if they can kind of sow enough discontent, even if it's on the fringes, I think that they deem this effective. And it it, it probably is.
1: Kremlin speak inside Putin's propaganda factory is the name of the Kindle single. Lucas I. Alpert is the author of that. He's a reporter for The Wall Street Journal, now covers media, then covered Russia. So add those two things together, you get the single.
0: Thanks a lot, Lucas. Thank you.
1: And now the spiel. Airmail. It led the news today. Crash landing on the Capitol lawn. A gyrocopter. You got to say it that way. You got to say a, a gyrocopter. Like that. Here we go.
4: That device you saw right there, which is referred to as a gyrocopter, landed on the west front of the Capitol. That's Luke Russert. On MSNBC. So, regardless of purpose, whether this was for a protest, whether this was somebody who was just having a joyride or whatnot, we can say that the secure air- airspace around the Capitol was breached by a device that was large enough to carry a human being. So who was this guy?
2: So one thing I want to pass along, this has not been confirmed uh, independently by NBC, but the Tampa Bay Times is running with this story that a local man from their area of Ruskin, Florida, a former mailman, lands a gyrocopter uh, on the Capitol to deliver a campaign message about uh, reform.
1: All right, MSNBC has the timeline a little backwards. The Tampa Times did not just report that this was a guy they found out was Doug Hughes. Tampa Times put up a video that they shot five days ago that they lovingly edited, and here's Doug Hughes. It's like a five-minute video telling you why he's doing this, shown riding in a ride-along, like they strapped a camera to his helmet, a ride-along in this exact gyrocopter, unless there are like six out there, with post office logos on the tail. So yeah, it was definitely Doug Hughes. In fact, this morning, I read the article in Tampa Bay Times about a guy who was going to land a gyrocopter at the Capitol. They said his name was Doug Hughes. They showed the gyrocopter. I guess MSNBC couldn't confirm that independently. I guess they didn't watch this video that I watched hours before the guy landed.
3: I have carefully planned it so that nobody will get hurt, including me, especially me.
1: Talking is Doug Hughes, post office employee. I'm going to say, soon-to-be-former post office employee. Here, again, this was online, on the website of a newspaper with a circulation of 300,000. Maybe this will help the newsmen crack the almost impenetrable motivations behind this plan.
3: I have got a plane, a gyroplane, and I'm going to fly it. I'm going to violate the no-fly zone, non-violently, and for nobody to get hurt. And I'm going to land on the Capitol Mall in front of the Capitol building. I'm going to have 535 letters strapped to the landing gear in in boxes. And those letters are going to be addressed to every member of Congress.
1: So it is a crazy plan. Crazy enough to work. Well, it worked enough to the point where Luke Russert is essentially begging someone anyway to just shoot the mailman out of the sky. The
4: last time I can tell you something like this happened to me personally is when there was a shooting in front of the Capitol in 2013. One person died in that encounter, and it was, the the facility was
1: on lockdown. People were told to shelter in place. Okay, that's not not actually something that happened to you personally, Luke, if you look up, you know, the definitions of those words. And this was a foolish man with a foolish plan, and well, not just me saying that. Air Commander Hughes says it too.
3: I don't believe that The authorities are going to shoot down a 60-year-old mailman in a flying bicycle.
1: And I know, you can say, what if his intent were nefarious? What if, what if, well, take it, Luke. I mean, what if there were explosives attached to that device and
4: it flew into the Capitol? It could cause a substantial amount of damage and and threaten human life.
1: Yeah, well, the immediate reaction of a reporter not asking why this happened, not asking what was going on here, but just being very fearful, I think it does say a lot. But nevertheless, uh, this one got through and it is certainly terrifying for a bunch of people. All right, let's step back from the feet and consider the quixotic quest that is detailed here. Doug Hughes wanted to spread a message of campaign finance reform. And his means of doing this was 535 written letters hand-delivered to all 535 members of Congress who had apparently come out on the lawn and meet with the guy who just crash-landed a gyrocopter there and i guess he is a mailman he actually put a stamp on the letters even though the whole point was to hand deliver them i can't figure out the stamp on the letters part did cost him 250 dollars on the video on the tampa tribune site they had other details that further call into question the sophistication of the plan a screenshot of one of the letters that hughes had written begins dear president of the joseph biden And then right up top in this letter to be delivered to both the House and the Senate, both controlled by Republicans, he begins, Consider the following statement by John Kerry in his farewell speech to the Senate. The unending chase for money, I believe, threatens to steal our democracy itself. They know it. They know we know it. And yet nothing happens. John Kerry, 213. Letter goes on from there. At length. Also undercutting the message. The fact that he flew a gyrocopter and landed on the Capitol lawn. On the other hand, he did fly a gyrocopter and landed on the Capitol lawn. I mean, here's a guy who could get things done. He can trend on Twitter. He can frighten Luke Russert. He can become an internet sensation. He can avoid jail time. Yeah, it's less clear. He could foment a movement for campaign finance reform. No, absolutely not. So in the end, Doug Hughes made a lot of miscalculations, but got a few of the big details exactly right.
3: No sane person would do what I'm doing.
1: And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi on her deathbed will have to give back to the government all the ums and ahs she took out of my statements. Joel Meyer, managing producer of The Gist, will have to, at the age of 55, give back to all his loved ones the time he took up arguing that the Colonel Mustard ending of Clue was better than the Mrs. Peacock ending. Andy Bauer, his executive producer, once peddled a recumbent bicycle to Ed Bagley's house to protest Transylvania 6500. Guests of The Gist stay at the San Luis Obispo Quality Inn featuring HBO, HBO Go, but with an ironclad no-spoiler-alert policy. The Gist, full disclosure, The Gist is not funded by Putin, but during NHL playoffs, we are fueled by Putin. Thanks for listening.
2: Hey, this is Brian Koppelman, host of the Slate Panoply podcast, The Moment. This week's guest is bestselling author John Acuff. John might be in the self-help category, but when you picture him, don't picture a, a huckster trying to tell you what to do. He is a bracingly honest and hilarious person, and before he tells you what to do, he always looks deep inside himself like he did on this week's episode of the
1: show. I knew I wanted to be an artist and an author and I was telling people to do brave things and I wasn't doing brave things. But that's what I want to know. What did that feel
2: like so what did that that felt horrible? Yeah. That felt horrible. You can find the moment at iTunes.com slash the moment or slate.com slash the moment.